0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Alberto Espe and Benjamin Stecher about their new book, Brain Fables, the history of neurodegenerative diseases and a blueprint to conquer them. An estimated 80 million people live with a neurodegenerative disease. That number is expected to increase rapidly as populations age, lifespan increases and exposure to toxins rises. Despite decades of research and billions in funding, there are no medications that can slow, much less stop the progress of these diseases. This is because diseases such as Parkinson's and Alzheimer's do not exist in biology. Yet hundreds of clinical trials around the world are examining the potential of single therapies in thousands of people sharing one of these labels. Compounding the problem, These therapies were developed on evidence from models that do not come close to capturing the complexity of these diseases in the affected humans. These practices must end. Brain Fables is a call to refocus on understanding living and aging to create the personalized treatments each affected individual desperately needs. Alberto Espe is Professor of Neurology an endowed chair of the University of Cincinnati Center for Parkinson's Disease and Movement Disorders. He has published extensively on Parkinson's disease and leads the first phenotype agnostic biomarker development program for patients with neurodegenerative diseases (CCBP), designed to deploy bioassays aiming at matching available therapies with those most likely to benefit. Regardless of their clinical diagnosis, Benjamin Stetcher was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease aged 29. He abandoned his career in China to dive headfirst into the field of neurodegenerative diseases, touring the best labs on the planet. And he's since become actively involved in Parkinson's disease research and advocacy. All right, so Alberto, Ben. Uh, Welcome to the show.
0: Thank you very much uh, for inviting
2: us, Kalina. Thank you for having us.
1: Good. All right. So as we're living through these unprecedented times, I'd like to start this interview by firstly asking how has the pandemic influenced you and your work? We will start with with Alberto, followed by Ben.
0: Well, thank you. Uh, I would say that uh, it has uh, cast a a light on what is essential and non-essential. And uh, uh, we just had a meeting uh, with our uh, uh, research team and uh, um, on what is uh, considered the third wave of COVID, uh, we are proud to uh, recognize that uh, we are now labeling research as as an essential activity which means that we're not going to shut off all activities as uh, we did the first time around. Uh, That is a way to mitigate the impact of COVID. Uh, Otherwise, though, it was uh, very much uh, a uh, stopping uh, of activities. The the effect that it had was uh, quite dramatic uh, in the early phase. And even though we're going through a... Uh, difficult time. Uh, uh, the the opportunities are are there for us to use all the protective equipment and all the precautions necessary to try to keep the research going, which is so important for our future.
2: Yeah, it's
1: quite, uh, sure, quite, quite a difference from the first wave, right?
0: Yeah, I think that it, even though it appears a, a worse uh, wave than the first time around, at least uh, for this part of the world, uh, it has come under a situation of better knowledge uh, uh, and, and understanding of, of the types of uh, protective strategies that could mitigate the risk that, of course, uh, we we are all incurring in, con- in continuing to conduct research. Uh, But we are also conducting clinic care and uh, about uh, 75% of all of our patients are uh, getting their care in person by virtue of the type of assessments that we uh, have to do. um, A lot of which requires examining the patient uh, physically, uh, something that makes uh, virtual visits uh, of uh, suboptimal
2: quality.
1: Yes, that's certainly good news uh, this time around. Yes. Uh, and Ben, how has the pandemic influenced you and your work?
2: So it's had uh, both good and bad effects, I think. Um, so at the beginning of the pandemic, I was actually in Cincinnati working with Alberto directly. And as a result of um, some of the things that happened as a result of the pandemic, though not necessarily directly because of the pandemic, uh, I relocated back to Toronto. Um, and uh, in some ways, it's been a blessing. I mean, it's good to get to been able to catch up with people here. And COVID is a little bit better controlled here in Toronto and Canada than it is in America at the moment. But um, it's also come with a few more restrictions as well. I just actually, as Alberto was speaking just now, I got a message from a friend of mine telling me that it looks like the Ont- government of Ontario is going to call for another lockdown starting on Friday. Mm. So, um, yeah, it, it it comes with its fair share of challenges. and um, But with all these things, he's just learning how to adapt and how to overcome each uh, new obstacle as it presents itself.
0: Yeah, I, I would like to add to that, uh, Galina, that uh, in many ways uh, we are more connected than ever. I mean, this this very uh, interview is an expression of uh, what uh, COVID has forced us all to do, which is to connect in, in ways that are, in fact, perhaps uh, even more effective at keeping us all connected uh, and, and, and interacting. So so even though Ben is now not uh, physically in Cincinnati, we are as uh, actively engaged with each other as we were when he was here. And, uh, and, and you can think of so many other activities happening, uh, in part uh, perhaps because of COVID. Uh, meetings we've had, uh, uh, presentations, discussions, conversations that perhaps would not have occurred if COVID hadn't happened, as paradoxical as that seems.
1: Yes, for sure. It uh, sort of forced us into adopt these technologies and approaches that we would not have uh, done if it hasn't happened. So perhaps that's one of the silver linings of this uh, really dire situation.
0: Exactly.
1: Okay, excellent. So let's uh, talk about both of you a little bit. So could you please tell us more about yourself? And uh, we will start with Alberto, so can you tell us how you got interested in studying neurodegener- that neurodegenerative diseases? Well,
0: Yelena, it's, it's never a direct path to, the, to, to where I am. I, I think uh, uh, I could say that there were many uh, twists and turns, and perhaps some ostensibly accidental uh, detours that got me where where i am uh so so i cannot claim that it's all by design but i could uh say that uh, i was i've i've been always fascinated by the brain uh brain to me is uh just uh, an, an amazing structure uh this very complex uh, uh part of our bodies that uh, makes us who we are and i've been always interested about why we are so different why we also have so much in common and why some people develop funny ways of aging (laughs) funny as uh, of course uh, a way of saying that uh, we've had to come up with uh, uh, concepts to understand why we age unusually or why we age successfully depending on how we kind of classify people and so uh, the brain Never, never stopped to amaze me, and I think that because it's uh, very challenging in so many different levels, and because of the type of disability it generates in people, uh, I, I felt that I had to end somehow where I have been, and uh, and I, like I cannot think of anything else I, I I would rather do. So, and of course, uh, I have to say that uh, I, I was inspired by by professors along the way that they uh, exuded that passion for for patient care. Um, The the first uh, uh, professor that got me into uh, thinking that I should really pursue the path of neurodegenerative diseases was uh, uh, Joanne Wojcic. She's at Indiana University and she is entirely devoted to her patients. It was just kind of a passion. All the patients loved her. And I could see that because there was so much dedication to it. And at the same time, there were so many questions that she was highlighting the patients were posing to her that she had no answers for. So I knew that there was a a big deal of need as well and that research was going to have to be central to whatever I could do in the space of neurodegeneration.
1: So would you say that um, because your professor was so open and challenging you to pursue those very interesting areas that sort of uh, embodied in in your passion for this brain and uh, all the all the neurology research
0: that's exactly right so it's uh, really a strike of luck that, that I had someone that, that was to show me how much uh, uh, value is there, there is in 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 dedication and passion and perseverance and and uh, she, was, uh, she was very, very unique. And I don't know if she knows how much she influenced me because I haven't been able to uh, follow up with her uh, um, as much. Uh, she's not uh, in the research circles uh, as, as I have gotten to be, but, uh, but she's, uh, she was extremely influential to me. And, and, but one thing that also she was influential to me, and uh, this is something that uh, will resonate with men, is that she was trained by who became my mentor tony lang in the field of parkinson's and neurodegenerative research Uh, and in fact uh, i went to toronto because i thought she was so superbly trained and because she had said that uh, if if i was to choose the path she did that she would rather me go to toronto as well rather than anywhere else and i took her uh, on Every bit of the counsel she gave me, and uh, I certainly made Toronto my my priority for the destination to uh, be for my uh, for my training in movement disorders.
1: So, what would be your advice for our early career scientist researchers?
0: Well, I, I would say to to be very attentive uh, to what tickles your heart. Uh, what is it that makes your heart rate goes up? What makes you get up in the early morning? What are the first thoughts that come to your mind? What are the last thoughts that come to your mind when you go to bed? Uh, what sometimes keeps you awake at night? What kind of excitement is that? And and that's what you need to follow. Because because research uh, is dedication to a passion and the passion aspect is so personal. And, and it's, it's impossible to transfer passion, but it can be communicated in the way it was to me uh, because I was also paying attention to my own signals. I was uh, getting uh, just uh, a tickle in my heart just the same way as as I was seeing uh, uh, Joanne Wojcic doing her evaluations with patients. So I think that's kind of the key thing that might require for all of us, as it was the case with me, not to settle too soon because sometimes uh, you, you, you want to keep on listening to, to what you feel. And that's, uh, that requires time. Uh, it may not develop, uh, uh very abruptly. In fact, it may take quite a, it may be, again, a winding and torturous, uh, road <laughs> to, to the destination. I think that's a, a fair way to describe what isn't really a straight path, but it can only be driven by the passion that you've, uh, uncovered about, about yourself you know, and based on the experiences you have. So remain very open. I think that's kind of the the best way to... Because ultimately, once you are in the path that you are, you you look back and say, gosh, I am so happy I'm where I am. And I can't think of any other alternative to this that would have brought to me any greater fulfillment than what I'm doing now.
1: Yeah, and certainly this investigative approach and your passion is really seen throughout the book that we will discuss in just a moment. So uh, just before that, then, um, I would like to ask Ben, so you are the patient advocate, and this term might not be very familiar to uh, most of our listeners. So first of all, can you describe what is patient advocate and how you got involved in it?
2: Sure. So um, it's it's kind of a meaningless term in some sense, because it is, nothing, it is one that uh, I don't think has been well defined. By anybody before but really it's just somebody who pushes for change changes in such a way that benefit patients more directly i think a lot of um, research and a lot of the focus of past work was not necessarily done with the patients in mind and you can see that very clearly in just some of the designs of the protocols and some of the designs of the studies as well they were designed uh with yet with the perspective of what uh, scientists see in the laboratory or what they see on the benches that they work on but not necessarily what is seen by doctors or what patients experience in the clinic or uh, on a daily basis um and so i just saw a need for that i just i saw an immense need when i first got into this and when i first started to really delve into the research and start to get a better sense of how we treat and manage this disease that there was a much there was a great need for patients to take a much more active role in the entire process all the way from the initial uh, lab studies that get done to the implementation of uh, trials and drugs in, on the other end of the spectrum, patients, the patient voice was lacking in almost every area. And I just saw that there was a great need to fill that void. So I uh, started to do what I can to make my voice heard To get to know people in the field and to see how I what I could do to help push things forward.
1: Yes, for sure, and uh, this is really important that you're uh, putting the ground groundwork for this sort of things because as the population ages, most of us are probably going to be some sort of patient, isn't it? Whether it it's neurodegenerative disorders or cancer or some other aging related diseases. So, do you think it it is important to get people involved as early? As possible even before they are considered sort of patients.
2: yeah I mean we're all a product of uh, a long line of evolutionary history um, and then we, we've all been imbued with this thing called life uh, but we I th- I think there's an awareness the growing awareness anyways and this is something you discover when you become a patient that we're very much an imperfect system none of us are designed to be able to perfectly live in this world that we happen to inhabit um and there are times when certain vital parts of that system break down and you don't always have a lot of control over which which pieces break down in which order and um yeah it just kind of uh, as a growing sense of your own vulnerability and your own um understanding of yourself as a living thing in this world in which you're constant and especially the world that we live in nowadays that has it's filled with all sorts of pollutants and toxins and Environmental hazards, Um, the number of cases of a lot of different diseases, especially neurodegenerative diseases, and especially in that group, Parkinson's disease, are growing pretty rapidly as a result of all these things. Also, we live a little bit longer nowadays, so there's just more of a need to pay attention to your health and to understand the role that I think every individual in society plays in ensuring the health of every other individual in society.
1: Yes, that's absolutely true, yes. And you were diagnosed with Parkinson's disease very young as well. And you have background in philosophy, is that right?
2: Yes, correct. I was diagnosed at 29 and I took uh, history and philosophy classes when I was in uh, university.
1: Did it help somehow for you to uh, position yourself within uh, this new um, sort of part, part of your identity of being a Parkinson's patient?
2: Yeah, my, philo- my training, I guess, as a kind of amateur philosopher of sorts, definitely did help me. It helped ground me in a sense of what is real and, what, um, and uh, helped define the problem that I was going to be facing. Uh, but I, I guess the interesting part of it is that as I've come to understand this disease a little bit better and I've, as I've come to know the field a little bit more, I've been kind of surprised by how much this disease has actually influenced my philosophy as well. Um, getting a better understanding of myself as a living thing that eventually does break down. I mean, we all break down at some point. Um, and also just a better understanding of the brain and what everything that happens in, between your ears has really helped to guide my philosophy and my perspective on life, what life is, and um, in some sense, what we're all kind of doing here.
1: Excellent. So now, how did your roads crisscross? So, Alberto, your very much on a medical side, and Ben, you're a bit more on the philosophy side. So how come you, how you came to writing this book?
0: Ben, you you are better at telling
2: the story. Why
0: don't you go first?
2: (laughs) All right. Um, So I was busy kind of uh, getting to know the field and getting to know the research and getting to know all the scientists behind this uh, that are pushing things forward. And along the way i heard alberto's name and i had a few people actually tell me that i should reach out to him at some point but it wasn't until i got a recommendation from tony lang who's alberto's mentor uh who's also the head of the clinic here in toronto where i'm a patient at he saw my skepticism he saw my curiosity and he saw my need to kind of continually push the message that i was driving forward uh to everyone else in the world and he's he obviously knew Alberto very well and he saw, I think, a kind of a, a match made in heaven in some sense. Uh, in that he I think he very clearly saw that we share a lot of the same skepticisms, we share a lot of the same ways of thinking about how to push things forward. Um, and also there was one paper in particular that really uh kind of was the final kind of uh straw that broke the camel's back in some sense in my and it really helped me to understand, okay, I need to reach out to this guy, I need to get a better sense of what he's talking about. And that was a paper he wrote in the Journal of Parkinson's Disease, where he talked about the future of clinical trials and the future of disease-modifying therapies in Parkinson's. And in that one paper, he very just succinctly and very adeptly uh, was able to describe what I have now come to believe is the path forward in Parkinson's disease, the way that we should be developing disease-modifying therapies and the strategies that we should be using to tackle this disease properly. And those, that theory, that, that idea of how we should be doing things um, is what drew me toward, to reach out to him and to ask for an interview, ask to interview him for my, the website that I was building, Tomorrow Edition. And it also led to the book that we wrote together, where we expressed uh, the ideas that had been percolating in his mind and that um, I think should be the way that we approach and try to tackle this disease as a field really going forward in the future.
1: And Alberto, what was your response uh, the first time you heard uh, from Ben?
0: Well, it, it was uh, a wonderful uh, response because I was delighted uh, to have him uh, as someone in uh, the patient world that would be receptive to to the skepticism, right? Uh, when you think about this, uh, Galena, uh, it, it, it is harder to think of Parkinson's as anything other than ADCs. And of course, we uh, like to think for the purposes of quote-unquote hope to uh, uh, advance the concept that we are so close to finishing up the puzzle that Parkinson's is, that we are so close to reaching finally a success in the quest for a biomarker for Parkinson's, that we are so close to finding a cure for Parkinson's. And when you think about all these statements, they are very hopeful, Uh, but uh, it is hard for a patient. To recognize that the hope is not based on evidence; it is based on aspiration. It is hope uh, on the basis of hope and hope alone. And so, Ben was, I think, looking for hope, but uh, trying to, as as the scientist he truly is, uh, for for the rational of us thinking the way we've been thinking. And I think that. Uh, uh, it, to me, it was wonderful because uh, it, it is hard to find a critical mind, especially one about which these ideas on Parkinson's disease are not just mere intellectual curiosities, but in fact matters uh, that are vital. Uh, and, uh, and 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 that was, uh, I think, very very important. So when we started talking uh, uh, on the basis. Uh, of the connection and I, I'm glad that this paper was uh, of, of interest to, to Ben, we realized that in fact, we were both saying the same things, uh, perhaps with different angles. Uh, and we were both looking at the data from a different perspective, because at the end of the day, it's not that we were coming up with new data. We were just simply assessing the body of literature and reaching different conclusions uh and uh I think that's sort of how we began to understand that the conversation we were having for different sections of uh, ben's uh tomorrow editions website was uh, perhaps enough drama to so to speak for a book uh to to be created uh and so uh i am just uh, delighted I, I have to admit that uh, creating the book with ben has been one of my my most uh, joyous experiences because it's it's not just the creative process, but it's in fact recognizing that there is an alternative universe that's actually uh, better adapted to the data generated over decades than the story we've been telling ourselves about what that data says, which is why the book is Fables in the title. Uh, That's why we've used the term Fables uh, to emphasize Uh, that uh, there really is a history of neurodegenerative diseases that's the the narrative we all have uh, consumed, uh, beautiful, logical, compelling, biologically fictional, and then a hidden history of the same data that reveals a completely different portrait.
1: So therefore, this, uh, even some sort of unusual collaboration, it was exactly what was needed to bridge the gap to bring the patients basically from the position of the subject to the active participant in the research to define the most important directions of the research right
0: exactly that's exactly right yes and and and, and to to really fully use our roles both uh, as a patient patient advocate and as the uh, person in my case to be thinking about research endeavors as, as critical consumers of the data that would be then used to justify future endeavors. So the, and I think that this part is, is worth noting. I, I, I made a note of this in the, in the preface of the book, which is that uh, we have taken a very uh, uh, low risk approach to science uh, and is uh, based on funding mechanism is based on uh, who is funding what rather than what is it that we need to do and so much of the research ends up in uh, uh, ways to satisfy uh, grant uh, opportunities that are destined to probe to something about which the funder things is where we all need to go. So therefore, the research direction is one that's designed to get a pile of money, <laughs> to get the research going, uh, but it's not research to answer key questions. is how, you know, what can we do with, the, with a given pile of money uh, to, to answer the question that particular research uh, proposal is asking us to answer. As opposed to what should we do, and, uh, and and that latter aspect is is fraught by difficulties because typically what we should do is a lot more expensive, right? We in the book uh, propose the term moonshot because really what we need to is uh, do is understand aging at the basic level without the the labels that we have uh, applied to create uh, order to the chaos that is uh, the universe of neurodegenerative diseases. We really need to understand why is it that we age in funny ways. So aging as a a global endeavor, we need to understand it better uh, because the the elephant in the room in all neurodegenerative diseases is aging. Uh, Ben being a bit of an exception because uh, he has a young onset form of Parkinson's, uh, presumably the genetic component is, is, is stronger in him than others. Uh, but, uh, but by and large, age still plays a, a very important role. And so understanding aging is important, but that requires a much larger investment than trying to determine if we can come up with uh, a biomarker of Parkinson's disease, where it implies already that we know what Parkinson's is. all we need to do is ask biology to validate the stuff that we think is the truth, the concept that doctors have come up with to define Parkinson's as Parkinson's. So uh, as you can imagine, uh, the, the task ahead is is, is very hard uh, and, and and one could argue that the obstacles are the more difficult to surmount because we already suspect we know what parkinson's is and all we have to do is just find this one extra piece of the puzzle and then we'll have it all figured out and it's unfortunate because that sense of knowing is in fact a major obstacle to progress
1: so uh, just before we go into a scientific part about uh, parkinson's um ben were you surprised on how you were accepted within this scientific community the enthusiasm that you saw from the uh, doctors from scientists in your communications
2: uh yes and no uh at the beginning i didn't see a lot of that enthusiasm i didn't see a lot of that acceptance uh when i first started out on this journey i would send about 10 emails out to scientists or doctors for every one that i received uh now that equation is almost flipped to some degree but um Yeah, it took a long time. It took um, a lot of dogged determination. It took a lot of kind of just stubbornly going from one lab to another lab, just constantly reaching out to people before I was actually feeling like I was accepted and my voice was being heard. Um, And really, it came from the, uh, the interviews that I did and from the website that I built that I think I was able to establish kind of a reputation for somebody who asks what I hope are good questions and that has an inquisitive mind um but it it was a long journey and i see it in a lot of patients as well that i talk to i mean they often ask me like how did i get into all these doors how did i get my started in this field um, and i see the frustrations that a lot of them feel especially if you're confined to just where you are uh, and you don't have the luxury to be able to travel especially in times like these it's incredibly difficult for people to get their foot in the door in places um, and a lot of doctors a lot of researchers are not frankly, that open-minded. They, they don't see the value often in communicating with patients. They don't see the value really in, um, in interacting with the patient community. They just feel like, I, I see a lot of them that feel like they have nothing left to learn from them, from the patients that might be in their community. Um, and I feel that's a great shame because I feel like we do have a lot to bring to the table and we have a lot, and we can also help just ground people in reality. And one of the starkest kind of portraits of this was when I first attended the World Parkinson's Congress in Portland in 2016. I thought I had some idea of what Parkinson's was and what Parkinson's is, but then I walk around the hallway of this conference center, and there was probably a thousand different people with Parkinson's walking around the hallway, and I could clearly see that there was about a thousand different cases of Parkinson's. No two patients uh, expressed the disease in the exactly the same way, and that's that really got started the, the, the ball rolling in my head that are we really talking about one thing? Is this one disease? Is this a misnomer that we've put on society to label this as Parkinson's disease? Whereas in fact, it looks far more like a spectrum of disorder. Um, And that's something that I think researchers in particular need to be constantly reminded of, because especially those who work in laboratories all day long, and don't often, if ever, interact with patients, and I can't tell you how many labs I've been to, how many biotech companies I've been to, where I was the first patient to ever walk through their doors. Um, and I see that they, they, you know, they work on homogeneous cell culture lines. They work on 500 rats that all grew up in the same environment and that look the same and are genetically identical. And they, I think in some ways that, that exposure to what they think the disease is deceives them into thinking that this problem is a little bit simpler than it really is. Um, that we can isolate it down to one one, uh, one form of cellular dysfunction or another, and I think that leads to a lot of ideas of people chasing like just mitochondrial dysfunction to explain all of Parkinson's or just lysosomal dysfunction or just protein misfolding or just any one thing to try to explain the whole of what this disease is. Um, so I think that just that constant exposure, that constant interaction with the patient community really benefits uh, the research that gets done and helps people helps ground people in the reality of what this disease is. So, I just try to make sure that as much of that is happening as possible, and I hope more of it happens as a result of some of the things that I've been doing.
1: That's an excellent segue to uh, a bit more of a nitty-gritty of the science in Parkinson's. So, Alberto, you start with a very provocative statement that Parkinson's and Alzheimer's diseases do not exist. So, could you please elaborate on what you mean by that?
0: Sure. Uh, Well, uh, let me then start by imagining that we know Ben's Parkinson's biology. Let's imagine that we uncover not, we we know a little bit about uh, Ben's genetics and let's imagine that beyond the genetics, we work out the specific biology that is in fact responsible for Ben's Parkinson's. We can say at that point that we have uncovered than a very important mechanism of disease in Parkinson's. Or we could say that we've understood Ben Stetcher's Parkinson's disease in a manner that allows us to now intervene therapeutically for him and him alone. Now, this is the tension between a disease as a concept, a construct, and a person with a disease, as what happens to uh, be created by this example. So, So let's, so what we've done is that we've tried to understand individuals with unusual types of Parkinson's, or at least with some way of getting to know their type of Parkinson's better, particularly with families, in which a genetic mutation is understood and uh, a biology is worked out uh, to give us information about the disease. And so what has happened, therefore, is that the disease, as we conceive it, has grown to be this monster of so many different metabolic pathways that are affected. If you think of a cellular machinery that uh, you're interested in, it is likely that's been quote-unquote responsible or correlated with or associated with Parkinson's disease because someone somewhere was understood as having an element of that biology affected that happened to have had Parkinson's disease. So we know a lot about Parkinson's in the manner we've understood it to be, but next to nothing about each individual affected. Right. So the, the difficulty then is in overcoming the culture. The culture is we know what Parkinson's is. We just need to figure out how the disease is uh, caused by or, or, or driven by. And then we'll have a treatment for everyone with Parkinson's. That is a very appealing idea that we've tested time and again and refuse to reject. Even though the evidence is overwhelmingly against the idea that there is a disease, but that there are people with a form of disease that we would need to treat and address in a in a unique manner, because each individual's biology, as Ben was uh, rightly pointed out, is truly unique to them. So when we say Parkinson's doesn't exist, is to say that if we were to ask biology what Parkinson's is, biology, if it were to speak, could say nothing about that because there there is no specific boundary uh, that biology understands as encompassing what we have come to understand as Parkinson's disease, nor uh, that which we have come to understand as Alzheimer's disease, nor any of the other neurodegenerative diseases. Now, we defined Parkinson's as a levodopa-responsive Parkinsonism that is associated with, parentheses, caused by aggregation of alpha-synuclein. That's sort of the the standard definition of Parkinson's. Why do we think that way? Because back in the early 19th century, uh, uh, we, in fact, uh, were aware of a syndrome of people with uh, uh, dopamine deficiency eventually in the late 1970s, in this case, uh, levodopa replacement was proven to be cor- a corrective uh, strategy for the dopamine deficiency. But then back in 1917, uh, we had an evidence that uh, the individuals who've had that syndrome uh, really had on death aggregates of alpha-synuclein. At the time we didn't know it was alpha-synuclein, we just called them Louis bodies because of the neuropathologist that actually made the first discovery. So we had the clinical syndrome, we have the neuropathology, it must be the same disease, number one. And number two, those aggregates that uh, became identifiable at autopsy were not just uh, the last standing soldiers, they surely were the cause of the disease. So we created a model of disease on the basis of making sense of a forensic scene where we were looking at the ashes of a fire and with the stuff that was made apparent to us in the ashes of the fire, we built the whole crime scene. And we've never been able to shake that off. So Parkinson's only exists in our imagination. It is a compelling, beautiful idea. It really is beautiful. But it's only imagined by us. And the, the greatest exercise in imagination came in uh, 2003 when uh, Brack and colleagues had uh, 40 plus brains. And this is a beautiful story that's uh, better uh, told in uh, brain fables where he had about 40 five or so brains uh, of people who have had Parkinson's, 60-plus brains of people who hadn't, staining the brains in slices with uh, alpha-synuclein staining to demo, to look for Louis' pathology. And of course, he looked at these 100-plus brains and realized that there was a little bit of Louis' uh, pathology staining here, a little bit more there, a little bit more there. He realized that those who didn't have any symptoms had less of the staining those who had symptoms had a lot more staining and then those who had really bad parkinson's symptoms seemed to have had a lot a lot of staining and they, they he just made a story that the pathology spread from one level to another <laughs> so he he made that up and ever since then we have tried to create science to validate that which Brack predicted was only explainable by the propagation, the spread, the proliferation, the replication of protein from one area of the uh, peripheral nervous system to the central nervous system and then it's spreading to the brain, as if that was really ultimately what uh, would bring the story of Parkinson's full circle. And that story, as beautiful and as compelling as it is, is uh, the most harmful of all the stories that have been created because it's driven science to explain how is it that the proteins replicate and instead proteins now we're much more clear do not replicate they precipitate they crystallize they polymerize rather than acquire virus-like properties as Brack suggested they may. that's why Parkinson's doesn't exist, except in our imagination, but we have created such a compelling story about what Parkinson's is that science has done nothing to overcome it. Rather, we're trying to develop data to back it up in, instead of to, uh, to, re- to refute it. And one of the best questions that, uh, as Ben was saying, Ben uh, asked really uncomfortable questions. The questions that he's asked sometimes in uh, meetings of scientific uh, nature is what can we do to falsify the hypothesis that Parkinson's is caused by alpha synuclein aggregation? And, and he invariably finds uh, staring uh, look and perhaps, you know, evasive answers because we, we don't want to reject or falsify hypotheses we have enshrined to become the truth. So I'll leave it at that <laughs> uh, sorry, I probably uh, went too long for uh, to, to explain that, but I think this is central to what everyone is doing and uh, and it is, uh, it is what uh, uh, you Noah Harari refers to as the second reality uh, it really we've created a second reality in uh, the story of parkinson's that is so powerful it actually drives anything else in the physical world.
1: Um- So you have described the situation very well in very nice details. And I'm really glad that you went ahead to challenge these beliefs because it's it's not easy, isn't it? When the whole field is really focused on one specific thing without trying to go outside of it. So how did you find that? How did you find going outside of these norms?
0: Well, it's, it's such a such a good question, uh, and I think uh, I think uh, I like Ben. You know, so Ben was saying that he saw a thousand people and saw ta- a thousand different diseases. I, I was doing. I was seeing the same in uh, in my clinic practice. And uh, I, I I realized that we were living a cognitive dissonance that uh, we were admitting that Parkinson's must be many diseases but in the very next breath saying, but we are very close to finding a biomarker for Parkinson's. So what a minute! if we can admit that Parkinson's isn't one disease, if we can give lip service to it, why don't we walk that talk and really start working toward validating that it is many diseases. And then if it is many diseases and across them all, they all aggregate proteins, how could the aggregation of proteins be pathogenic to them all? So pathology, which is essentially what we find in autopsies and what has come to define Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and others, has come to equate to etiology, which is the cause of diseases. But pathology is a consequence of many biologists can never be the etiology. And it is unfortunate that something as, as relatively simple as recognizing that because you see something, you cannot elaborate causation as a result of it. We have kind of skipped that. That's another lip service, we say. We always admit that cross-sectional studies can only talk to us about correlation, not causation. And yet, we have embraced the idea that what correlation exists between Parkinson's and alpha-synuclein aggregates, for instance, must speak to etiology, which is why we have embarked now in a world in which we are asking patients to subject themselves to antibody therapy against alpha-synuclein. And it is it is uh, uh, it, it, very unfortunate because it essentially means we have not learned any lessons from the very same approach that the field of Alzheimer's disease uh, enacted uh, and, and, and has nothing to show for two decades and 35 clinical trials, 35 clinical trials, all of them negative, and yet we insist that the model of protein aggregations somehow one day will work, that the negative trials are not an indictment on that which we think is the truth, but really an indictment on the clinical trials themselves, the imperfections of the trial design and execution rather than the imperfections on our ideas, because our ideas, God knows, are perfect.
1: <laughs> so blaming the technicality.
0: Exactly, exactly. And so we, 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 we've we gotten to be great at excusing ourselves. Uh, we we know that our ideas are beyond blemish. And of course, the, the fact that the ideas uh, made into hypotheses do not pan out in clinical trials can only, tell us that clinical trials are just uh, needing to be better. Uh, If we could ever come up with a perfect clinical trial, then our ideas will finally be validated.
1: So you define the problem very compellingly in a book. So then you have your approach and solution. So rather than conforming a patient with a set of symptoms to the syndrome that we can call Parkinson's, for example, you approach the set of symptoms of individual patient to define the disorder bottom-up. Is that right?
0: Well, uh, for an individual, what we would want to uh, do is to admit that we don't know what an individual has. So in the future, we hope that a neurologist at the bedside would say, based on all I can accrue from the information at the bedside, we have something here called Parkinson's disease, but that means uh, that we don't really know what you have unless and until we understand uh, any genetic components and we have to do this test and this test, very much the approach of oncology where they do a variety of different uh, biological assessments and then realize what type of Parkinson's that might be. And then and only then we, we would say to a patient, then we can treat you, your disease. Meanwhile, here's levodopa as a replacement strategy for the dopamine you aren't manufacturing sufficient amounts of. Uh, so that's sort of where we want to be. Now, currently, the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease is possible to make by virtue of determination of elements that are common denominators. One common denominator is dopamine deficiency. Another one, of course, is alpha-synuclein aggregation. We have, there might be biopsy studies that we can do to try to determine that in life. We don't have to wait till autopsy, but those are convergence biomarkers. And what we need are di- divergence biomarkers, biomarkers that are present in some individuals and have an etiologic value, but absent in most of them. If, if we find a biomarker that is present in everyone with Parkinson's, such as uh, the recent uh, RT-Quick uh, mm-hmm. method for alpha-synuclein in serum, That probably would not be important pathogenically. That means as a cause of the disease to most people with Parkinson's, right? That would be a common denominator. So we need to move from uh, looking at what is common across people to what is different about people. And that's why we are back to the concept that we can only get there if we study aging in a phenotype agnostic fashion, which is what we have begun doing this with Ben's uh, help.
1: Perhaps this type of analysis could also be spurred by the recent developments in a big data uh, analytics and processing.
0: Exactly. Yeah, we need to do that. Now, for further analysis, the analytics will have to be done completely blinded to the clinical data, right? Because the clinical data is what we think it is uh, the order of the universe so we say well that person has parkinson's in fact that person has tremor dominant parkinson's because we assume that lack of tremor implies a completely different biology and we also assume that eventually will be proven right that when we provide uh, a label to a clinical the, to, to, to a patient on a clinical basis that that label eventually will be proven to align uh, neatly with biological markers. In fact, time and again, it hasn't been the case. There's a lot of variability where we use the anchor of that which we call someone, such as Parkinson's with tremor uh, versus Parkinson's without, and what happens to uh, cluster uh, statistically in terms of the kinds of things we can measure. And typically we are uh, still in the search of determining the types of proteins that accumulate uh, alpha-synuclein, total tau, phosphorylated tau, A-beta 42, those are the typical proteins that we look into. But we're again, searching tail ends of, the, of many biologists and then finding that as we use the, uh, the clinical markers, as independent variables, that then the outputs are not going to be reproducible within and between cohorts, as we uh, published in a paper in 2017 in movement disorders.
1: Yes, yeah, so that's definitely a, sh- a shift in perception of how we think, how we approach these uh, disorders. Uh, so Ben, does this actually resonate with you for uh, against what you have seen or uh, before?
2: Yes, it very much does. And that's a big part of the reason why I came to Cincinnati and why I, uh, I was attracted to the work of Alberto. I just saw a very clear vision for how we can start to segregate people into proper biological, biologically defined categories and do away with some of the old thinking about what we think this disease is uh, and create new categories that help us uh, better, not, not only give patients a better understanding of what's wrong with them, but also hopefully down the road, enable us to better match uh, patients to specific therapies that are tailored to, or that are better situated for their particular biological dysfunction.
1: So can you just help us envision uh, how it looks? So even though you have still Parkinson's disease, the, your uh, patients have, all of the patients have uh, this uh, disorder, but they are stratified into different groups based on their biomarkers?
0: Yeah, so, the way it's uh, set up is that we are inclusive, not exclusive. That means that we don't just uh, include into the cohort people with Parkinson's only as we define it, but people with any other types of Parkinsonism, progressive mm-hmm. palsy, corticobasal degeneration, dementia with bodies, as well as uh, patients with Alzheimer's and other dementias uh, that are neurodegenerative in nature as well. Um, uh, it's Perhaps important to parenthetically note that uh, uh, autopsy studies have shown that eight out of 10 patients with pathology-proven Parkinson's disease have pathology-proven Alzheimer's. And it doesn't make sense that people with Parkinson's disease would be so unlucky as to have such high rate of a co-pathology. Rather, it's more likely that the pathologies that we have defined as implying a given disease, in fact, are, again, byproducts of uh, many different biological uh, abnormalities, and that in a given individual, a given biological abnormality would give rise to pathology that we currently classify as two separate diseases, Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, only because of the way we've try to make sense of the world. So what we would then be uh, doing, and in fact that's part of the uh, methods of this particular uh, cohort, the CCBP, the methods paper was published uh, last month, is to uh, uh, emphasize uh, for the purposes of enhancing the uh, opportunity of translational uh, value of therapies that already exist, bioassays of those therapies in the Uh, biobanked specimens that we were collecting with the idea of determining the range of impairment of those bioassays that would render candidates uh, within those specific uh, abnormal ranges suitable to be matched to the therapies about which the bioassay is testing. So we are in essence creating a cohort that's very Uh, diverse, uh, that is is inclusive beyond uh, Parkinson's disease in order to begin finding the matches that many important therapies already developed uh, are uh, providing us the opportunity to. Uh, What you think about uh, the many clinical trials that uh, we've had, all of which invariably uh, negative, uh, does it mean that in retrospect, the molecules tested were futile or could we think that perhaps we never knew who those therapies were for? So this idea of matching the what to the who, uh, the molecules to the individuals, is is uh, seems uh, rather uh, uh, revolutionary. But it really is uh, borrowing from the playbooks pages of other fields of medicine, where in fact that has long been done, rather than relying on just the clinical level labels to uh, give people. Uh, different types of molecular interventions.
1: Excellent. Um, So, uh, just following on then from this quite dense uh, scientific discussion, I would like to mention that your book is really exceptional in its accessibility, both in writing and multiplicity of easy-to-understand graphs that convey all of this really complex information, and also very beautiful artwork. So why, in your opinion, is it important to be able to communicate all of these scientific topics, all of this information in this accessible way?
0: Well, uh, it's very important that we uh, understand why we're doing what we've been doing. And in many ways, the reason that this book came to be is because it is a call to arms about the implications of the data that's already accumulated when you looked at the data and let it speak for itself rather than trying to give it a a meaning that fulfills a preconceived notion of the world we've envisioned. So uh, it it is very important uh, to understand that all research ultimately is for people and uh, a a question that we have to ask, and I think the book uh, does uh, some uh, uh, level of, of encouragement to all of us is to ask the question of who any given body of data is applicable to, right? You hear a lot about the mm. uh, different types of uh, of molecular abnormalities in Parkinson's disease, some uh, therapies important in Parkinson's disease. And, and when you say, well, but hold on a second, Who with Parkinson's disease are you talking about, right? And it's it's, it's because we need to be consistent and remove ourselves from the, the, again, the dissonance of thinking that, yeah, we accept that Parkinson's is many diseases, but in the very next breath then say, but here we have a therapy for Parkinson's disease. Wait a minute. Which disease is the therapy or the biomarker you're talking about applicable to? That effort of asking the who question is going to have to become very important. and That's why these kinds of exercises are critical and, and the book hopefully will, will help uh, begin a change in the culture in terms of uh, adding the who part to every research endeavor we're engaging in.
1: And Ben, uh, what was your experience of the way your condition was communicated to you and how it was investigated and treated?
2: Um, so it was fairly straightforward. Um, so I was first pointed towards a movement disorder specialist by my aunt, who's a doctor herself. And I got the diagnosis right away. Um, And it was kind of, it was very like bluntly laid out in front of me what it might entail. Although it didn't, it took a while for it to really sink in. Um, At the beginning, I didn't think that, I didn't think much of it to be honest because my symptoms were relatively mild. uh, And I thought, okay, if this is Parkinson's disease, it's a little bit annoying, but it's really not that bothersome. But it didn't, it took a while for it to sink in that this is a progressive disorder that we have no way of slowing down really. Um, at least no therapy that is proven to slow down the course of this disease. There are all sorts of, uh, there's diets and there's exercise and those help to some degree, but there's really nothing that we, we have, that's proven effective in actually halting, let alone uh, slowing down the progression. So when, once that sunk in, once that understanding uh, took hold, and it became much more real. And I started to realize what was in front of me. And that's when I really took a much more devoted interest into the research. That's when I really started to delve into the science behind this. So, Because I wanted to see what was on the cutting edge, what, what the forefront of our knowledge had in store. That's when I really started reaching out and visiting labs around the world and getting to know uh, the best minds in the field. Um, and it was through all of that, through all of that understanding, through all the encounters that I had, that I've come to terms with what, with what it means to live with this disease, what it means to, what, what it will mean for my future, and um, also gives me, I think, the best chance possible of getting ahead of it and trying at some point to do something that might intervene in the actual course of this disease. And that's the kind of the question that I think everyone who has this disease is trying to ask themselves, and that's the same question that Alberto is asking, is, essentially, is how do we actually intervene in the disease process? Uh, it's great to have supplemental therapies. It's great to have therapies that can alleviate some of the symptoms that we experience. But the greatest fear of anyone diagnosed with a disease like this is that it's just going to continue to progress and continue to progress and get worse and worse day day after day after day. Uh, so really, even though we have to be very realistic about where hope comes from and we have to be very, very certain about uh, what our realistic expectations about what therapies might actually hold, Uh, We need to make sure that we're asking the right questions and we need to make sure that we're driving research in the right directions uh, if we're ever going to be able to realize even a fraction of the hope that's promised by medical science.
1: Excellent. So what did you learn from each other during writing the book? You already mentioned a few topics, but were there some specifics that really surprised you?
0: well it it uh, yes there is always uh a, a, an angle that uh in an approach and an overall um tone even to the the data and to the appro- to the the understanding of 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 the data in fact just digesting the literature that 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 impacts differently and and is very important to to see how there really isn't uh, obviously a, a one way of digesting the data, uh, uh, as as it's well well clear with the, the uh, with the examples the book uh, pro- uh, provides. But no, I I, I I what what plays out in the book uh, it ends up being a bit of a dialogue between Ben and I, and that's why each chapter is alternating with commentary, uh, and so it it brings to to life, he makes the, the the overall concept so vibrant. I think that is uh, uh, perhaps the most important message. The book would not be the same with uh, without uh, either voice removed. Uh, but in fact, I almost think that uh, Ben's voice is, is 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 much more poignant than my voice in the book. Uh, and so I, I think I uh, learned a lot more uh, by by our exchanges and by by what ultimately became the the, the dialogue uh, in the pages of the book, which is uh, in many ways, if you go from beginning to end of the book, you see how we evolve. It's almost as if there really is a conversation there, even though we're not uh, quite uh, using a dialogue form, but you can almost read it as a conversation between us.
2: Yeah, and I I just echo a lot of what Alberto said. It was really... a great experience just getting the chance to work on this from scratch basically um getting a chance to see how the whole process of writing a book is actually done and doing it with a co-author like Alberto who's very willing to listen and very willing to uh I I think a lot of researchers a lot of people in the field wouldn't be as accepting of patient voice being inserted in between their voice um I think that there's yeah I, I was just very uh constantly amazed at how Flexible and how willing Alberto was to allow me to take part in the whole process. And I think it really helped shape the whole narrative going through. And and as Alberto was saying, um, I think we both started off in very different places, but we ended up in kind of similar territory. And I think that that's intersected throughout the book and it's kind of weaved together through the narratives that we overlay uh, on top of one another that really propel the whole book forward. Yeah, perfectly stated. I fully agree.
1: Excellent. So just to round up the discussion I'd like to ask perhaps the most obvious but complex and at the same time crucial question. So Alberto, Alberto more from the medical part and then more from a philosophical part perhaps. So will we ever solve parkinsons or alzheimers?
0: You have to you have to define what is parkinsons.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and that brings us right to the beginning. <laughs>
0: that's right so so will we def- will we uh, cure parkinsons no will we have a biomarker for parkinsons no will we start curing individuals that are well defined with parkinsons yes it is a hard work ahead though because it requires to really enact the principles of precision medicine in parkinsons just because the brain is difficult and complex, it doesn't mean the brain skipped the loss of biology that the kidneys, the liver, the breast, and other organs uh, uh, are under uh, uh, for the purposes of therapeutic development. So uh, we, the principle of precision medicines imply that uh, you can only treat people, not diseases. People with diseases, is very different than treating diseases. So uh, so, yeah, so yeah, the answer to your question is, we can only solve Parkinson's one person at a time, but it will never be that we're gonna cure Parkinson's just like it's never been we're gonna cure cancer. But look at the progress that it's made in breast cancer, right? Uh, the 75% of all breast cancers fall under 20 different uh, molecular entities, each of which it requires a different cocktail uh, that might not work for others. But look at the progress that's been made by virtue of applying personalized medicine principles on individuals that have a disease that, in a, at some point, in the, up to 1981, was considered a disease. Breast cancer was universally a bad disease of the breast, and now we know it is many diseases of the breast. Right. So I hope that we come to appreciate that Parkinson's isn't a disease but it it really is a syndrome of many different diseases. And each individual may have a different type of Parkinson's and therefore would require a very different approach for uh, disease modification to slow down that disease progression. If we can do that for someone, that approach might not work for somebody else, even if the symptoms may be similar.
2: Yeah, I would say the question is similar to asking like, are we ever gonna catch Sasquatch or the Loch Ness Monster? or a unicorn for that matter. Um, It's impossible to cure something that doesn't exist. Um, So until we have a better understanding of what it is that we're actually dealing with, uh, we're not going to be able to make meaningful progress. And unfortunately, I think this disease will be with us or what we call this spectrum of disorder will be with us for some time to come. But I think we'll be able to accelerate progress in curing segments of 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 this spectrum if we can more fully embrace the idea of just how complex the disease is, how different it is from one individual to another. And I I really hope that that's what we're able to do going forward is that the, the generation of doctors and scientists that are being trained now have a very clear understanding that what they see in a laboratory, what they see under a microscope does not reflect what is happening in the brains of people actually living with this disease. And that to truly make progress, we're going to have to do a much better job of embrace, embracing complexity and and really getting to an individual understanding of what's going wrong in each in, in each person's brain.
1: Yes, excellent. Uh, so, really, defying the ingrained beliefs in a field is not easy, and um, as in this book, the the honesty on how you actually approach this topic uh, gives quite uh, quite. a bit of pragmatic hope to patients that it's still approachable It, it is possible to redefine the disorders still basing all the definitions on the hard data it is really strange that the precision medicine has taken so long to reach neurodegenerative disorder field
0: yeah absolutely
1: excellent so uh well alberto ben we've taken quite a bit of your time so just to wrap up, I would like to ask, uh, what are you working on uh, now? And we will start with Alberto.
0: Well, we are uh, trying to enact the principles that are uh, explained in Brain Table by having this large cohort of individuals. We began to, uh, soon, uh, uh, shortly before COVID and covid put a big damper on this operation although we are now uh, climbing back up but this is the large cohort about which i mentioned earlier that, uh, is uh people with uh, uh parkinson's and related conditions uh, other parkinsonisms as well as dementias with the idea of accruing uh, data in order to test biospecimens for bioassays that we are to develop that would uh tell us something about their potential for uh, becoming candidates for therapies that already exist so that they can be repurposed for the modification of their diseases, again, in this individual. So this is a, we can think of it as a matching program between therapies and and individuals. And it's called the CCBP, the Cincinnati cohort biomarker program. Uh, There is a paper in frontiers uh, that was published uh, last month that outlines the uh, methods uh, that we are uh, uh, using to uh, to explain the analytics, particularly which is very complicated but, and it may be subject to change, but it uh, outlines the overall uh, intent to use a phenotype-agnostic approach, meaning that we're not uh, going to use the clinical labels as independent variable, but in fact we're demoting it to dependent variables so to speak.
1: That sounds very exciting.
0: Yeah, no, very, very important, very good, and uh, little by little, uh, I think it's taken. Flight again, and of course Ben uh, has been instrumental in getting us going too, and uh, that's something that the two of us are, are working heavily on. Uh, ben from Toronto for sure, but uh, uh, raising the profile of the of the of
2: the effort and and bringing uh, some attention to it.
1: Great, and Ben, what is your next project?
2: So as Alberto said, I'm playing an active role in helping the CCBP along. I'm doing what I can to promote it and to help it uh, reach its mission, reach its endpoints. Um, and if anybody wants to learn more about it, you can go on our website at ccbpstudy.com uh, where you'll find all sorts of useful information. Uh, in addition to that, I found myself kind of going back to my, role, my previous career, in a sense, as an educator. Um, I've started to take a more active interest in just trying to make sure that both, not only researchers, but patients as well, have a better understanding of what we're actually dealing with here. So from the patient side of things, it can often be hard and intimidating to try to bridge the gaps that exist and try to talk to researchers and scientists about their work. Uh, So I'm trying to do what I can to help ensure that um, patients are a little bit better educated about what their disease is and some of the neurobiology that they'll need to understand to be able to bridge, to be able to enter this world and communicate with people. As part of that here in Toronto, uh, I'm part of now what's called the Patient Advisory Board to so the Toronto Western Hospital, where we're working to help uh, make the clinic run a little bit more efficiently and make sure the patient voice is heard in some of the, the decision making. And on top of that, I, there's some educational um, activities that I'm hoping to be able to say more about in the future that I hope uh, will help spur some young minds and, some, and people all over the world to take a more active interest in the brain and in neurodegenerative research.
1: That's amazing. So where can our listeners find your work? Where can, wh- where can they read a little bit more about this?
2: Um, well, you can go on my website, tomorrow edition, tmrwedition.com. You can follow me on Twitter. The hash- my handle is at Neuronologist1. Um, or you can just uh, hopefully st- stay tuned and I'll be able to, I'll have some announcements being made as well, either through my Twitter handle or even on LinkedIn or other places. Um, and yeah, I'll be, able, I'll be communicating through there. And as far as the CCBP goes, one of the best places to uh, keep up to date with the latest there is at the website that I mentioned, ccbpstudy.com. Hopefully we'll have some exciting things to reveal in the years to come as the, as the study unfolds and grows and uh, continues to gain more participants.
1: And Alberto, where can our listeners find your work?
0: For now, I think in the in the medical literature, uh, they look me up. They uh, could uh, find some of the work that we've been doing. PubMed might be the best place to get that information. Uh, ResearchGate is also another portal where uh, some uh, of the data is. Or the products have been uh, organized a little bit. And then uh, I am a relatively new convert to Twitter. So thanks to Ben, uh, I am now also in the Twitter sphere and uh, my Twitter handle is at Alberto Espe. <laughs> so there you can find some of my uh, editorial comments about uh, the state of uh, affairs and, and, and many of my comments on, on, the, on trying to add the who to uh, many different uh, endeavors that lacked it.
1: Excellent. Okay, so do you have any last uh, messages for our listeners? Let's
0: hope that they enjoyed the reading uh, of Brain Fables. And uh, uh, we, Ben and I, are happy to receive uh, any questions or comments, uh, any criticism, good or bad, uh, coming our way it would be wonderful.
2: Yeah, and if there's any researchers or patients, for that matter, out there that are looking to bridge the gaps and to expand, and to cross over into the, either the patient side or the researcher side, feel free to reach out. I, can, uh, I have a lot of people that I can connect you with and I uh, can hopefully help uh, facilitate some of those connections. Uh, that's a big part of what I try to do is just make sure that the two communities have as many chances as possible to interact and talk to each other as, as uh, there are.
1: Excellent. Okay, so I would like to thank our authors of the book uh, Brain Fables the history of neurodegenerative diseases and a blueprint to conquer them. So as we're recording in November 2020, there's still time to get this book before the Christmas holidays. And hopefully you're going to have a nice read. Okay, so thank you very much, Alberto.
0: Thank you, Galina. This was wonderful.
1: Thank you, Ben.
0: Thank you, Galina.
1: Okay, and have a nice evening.